celebration, bitches. Grab a drink, grab a glass. After that, I grab your feet. Why you whacking now? Shine now. Hello and welcome to episode 1034 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hi. We are doing a team preview podcast today, as we are most days for this month. And later in this episode, we'll be talking to Tim Healy, who covers the Marlins for the Sun Sentinel. Before him, we'll be talking to Levi Weaver, who covers the Rangers for WFAA. Before that, you have a quick follow-up on something we talked about recently? Yeah, just uh, some quick follow-up banter before we get to the previews. In an episode last week, we talked about a sort of viral tag in the World Baseball Classic from last week. Javier Baez received a throw from Yadier Molina at second base, and he caught the ball and tagged Nelson Cruz while not looking at the ball or Nelson Cruz and while pointing his index finger and arm in the air to celebrate the successful caught stealing. So we uh, we talked about that because we're thinking about other opportunities for a baseball player to celebrate early. And it got me thinking about, well, when would be a good time to do that? And long story short, wound up thinking about game seven, bottom of the whatever inning it was in the last World Series. Tenth, it was the tenth. Uh, when Mike Montgomery got the easy grounder from Michael Martinez, ball hit to Chris Bryant. So I have sent you the video. This was t- tweeted at me to give me a good mm-hmm. camera angle. I I wasn't sure if Javier Baez celebrated early on this play, which was also a fairly routine play that, you know, won the World Series. And I figured, well, <laughs> if you if you celebrate because you know that you're about to get a caught steal in a tournament before the actual regular season maybe you celebrate early in the world series so Mm -hmm. you have looked at the video i have the video open here on my monitor i have paused the playback with the ball shortly uh, just before arriving in anthony rizzo's outstretched glove you see chris bryant on the ground you see a few other cubs who are too far away from the camera for me to identify looking sort of moving and javier baez is looking at the ball doing nothing he's on his feet he's not jumping his arms are down he's just looking and waiting javier baez did not celebrate a routine grounder that he was not involved in in game seven (laughs) of the world series but he was sufficiently confident to celebrate a caught steal that hadn't happened yet (laughs) yeah maybe it's just something he does in spring training we also got an email from luis who sent us reminded us of a david ortiz example of this i guess it counts it's a It's an example where Ortiz starts to walk to first base as a pitch is thrown, as the pitch is on its way to first base. This is from 2014. It was, what was the count? 3-0. The pitch comes in and like as soon as really maybe even before the pitcher delivers the ball, but right around the same time, Ortiz just steps away from the box and starts walking down to first base. I don't know if you can count that as a celebration or not, but it was... Definitely taking it for granted that that was the outcome that was coming. Very nonchalant and casual and confident. So I like that, whether it uh, counts as a celebration or not. 
And one other good example submitted by a listener named John, Timo Perez in an LCS game five from the year 2000. He was playing center field for the Mets. And when Mike Hampton got the final fly out to Perez, he got in position under the fly ball and then just leaped in celebration a couple times, even before catching the ball. That's on YouTube if you want to search for it. Another good example. And I guess in in line with players expressing confidence in ways that aren't exactly the same, but there was a clip that made the rounds on Friday of Josh Donaldson playing in a minor league game. He recently had a calf strain, so he's being eased back into regular action. And Josh Donaldson was playing a minor league spring training game, and there is footage of him hitting a home run, turning around, and walking to the dugout. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, let's do that ourselves. We will walk away as this segment ends. And when we get back, we will be talking to Levi Weaver about the Rangers. Sweet transition. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. By the way, this Rangers segment was recorded before the news that Rangers ready Chichi Gonzalez was diagnosed with a partial tear of his UCL. He's going to get PRP injections and stop throwing for at least six weeks, just so you know. Texas Rangers had to ride in to the rescue of all that's well and good. Texas Rangers in pickups painted silver with bulldogs on the foot. Texas Rangers come to see. Okay, so we are ready to talk about the Rangers, and to do that, we are going to bring in a first-time effectively wild guest, Levi Weaver, who covers the Rangers for WFAA and occasionally MLB.com. Hey, Levi. How's it going, guys? It's going well. So... Everyone's written the article about the 2016 Rangers, in some cases multiple articles about how they seem to overachieve, and I'm sure that Rangers fans are sick of hearing this, so we won't dwell on it too much, and (laughs) as soon as the new season starts, we won't talk about it at all anymore, because it won't be so relevant, but since we're still in preview mode, is that something that you think the team took into account, I guess, in its preparation for this season? And in essence, you know, did they prepare for this year as if they were a 95 win team that just won the division? Usually that kind of team maybe doesn't have that much work to do. Do you think the players and the team believe that there was something to their outperformance of run differential and any other kind of record estimator you could come up with that's more than just they got lucky do they believe that there is some kind of replicable formula there yeah baseball players are uh, notoriously difficult to get to be that level of vulnerable so yes, if right. any of them did believe that they were that like felt that they got a little <laughs> bit lucky they certainly would not ever admit it and jeff bannister like chief among them would tell you that his team actually probably should have won 110 games so <laughs> yeah it, it got brought up a lot i mean it's there's there was no shortage of people that sort of pointed to the run differential and the and what the the record should have been, and just kind of went, eh, how are we feeling about this? And and you know, without a Bannister's an interesting guy because he does know about some advanced statistics, and he knows some saber stuff, and he's he's not a dummy. Like he gets it. He's not the old like Hawk Harrelson guy that's gonna TWTW you, <laughs> but he will like selectively just choose to ignore it. He's like, eh, I, I think we're better than that. I, uh-huh. You know, I think we've got a we've got a good room of guys. We got, professional men like he's like a a field general and so he he will like he just talks up his team like they're an army that's about to go you know save the world so Mm -hmm. and someone might say well that's why 
they overachieved, right? Because they have this inspirational clubhouse leader who's drilling it into them that they are that good, right? Which, you know, I don't know, maybe there's something to that, or maybe every manager is doing that to a certain extent, and not every team outperforms its underlying stats. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, you know, there's a limited number of major league manager jobs and you, you kind of tend to think that at least maybe if not the best 30 guys, at least maybe 20 out of the best 30 guys have those jobs. And so, you know, if it were as easy as that, you know, if he's finally figured out some way to motivate baseball players that nobody else has before, then he needs a raise. Right. Um, but no, I mean, near the end of the season, he talked about what he was called it like a, a proprietary plan that they had. And so, of course, Evan Grant, uh, I ever, you know, everybody was there, heard the word proprietary and went, okay, that means you don't want to tell us. And Evan's like, so what is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, I said it was proprietary. I'm not going to tell you. And, uh, you know, weeks later I heard him sort of overheard him kind of talking about it to somebody. And it was basically just like, get on base and then the, get that guy home. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, well, I've cracked the secret by Joe. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Rangers way. Get on base and <laughs> yeah. then score the run. Right. I feel bad with uh with the way that I think the Rangers get covered often because so much of the talk has been about sort of the the overperformance in the past. And then on the flip side of obviously the Rangers are entering what seems like a delicate period in their organizational I don't know sure. waterway. This is a stupid way to mm-hmm. put it, but in a couple <laughs> of years after this year, you've got. Luke Roy, of course, due for a free agency. Mm-hmm. You've got you Darvish, due for a free agency. Adrian Beltre in, mm-hmm. in two years. And I was looking through the most recent top 100 prospect lists in all of baseball. And the Rangers had two guys who made it. And I've never heard of their best ones. The, the farm system is weaker. The, we'll get into sort of the Profar and Gallo question later. But what is the feeling sort of within and around the organization about the, the importance of this season ahead, given yeah. where the franchise stands? So, People around the organization, you hear the the Darvish Beltre window, as as it were known, and of course Beltre has been extended a little longer. But there's, you know, people know that you're going to age out. Like all of your guys are going to continue to get older, and and yeah, we've the the team has sent away a lot of their best prospects to bring in guys like Luke Roy and Cole Hamels, and, and the Hamels one hurts more actually the longer we go. But we could talk about those guys uh, later, but. But to hear John Daniels talk about it, he said he doesn't really believe in windows. And you kind of look back at the track record and you go, well, you know, they made the World Series in 2010 and 11, and they've been relevant every year except for 2014 when they used like 700 players and I got <laughs> to play first base for them for two weeks. <laughs> but they have continued to kind of rebuild and restock and stay relevant. So it definitely does look like a closing window. You know, to hear John Daniels talk about it, maybe it, maybe it's not. And I suppose that will probably not be seen until two or three years from now if, if it's going to require a full, a full rebuild. But I think a lot of that does ride on guys you know, like Gallo and Profar and uh, to a lesser extent, guys like Ryan Rua and Johan Mendez and, and then maybe some free agent signings. When the Prince Fielder money comes off the books, that's, that's going to be a big one. And, and who knows what Darvish's contract is going to be. I, I think there's a lot of interest in bringing him back. But, uh, you know, I don't know philosophically if they're going to be willing to pay $30 million a year, which is, I think, probably – I think he'd be stupid not to ask for 30 I don't think he's going to get 30 <laughs> but he's, you got to ask. So, yeah, I don't know. This feels like, I guess, the best opportunity to just go ahead and ask. Joey Gallo, 
is uh, not projected to make the major league roster, doesn't look like, but he's, you know, sort of close. He's there as one of the big upside young players left, and Jerickson Profar is expected to, if not start, then play regularly. Profar last year, I would say, disappointed, unless he didn't really show any progress, although he's still incredibly young. Joey Gallo had sort of a down season in the minors. Uh, what is your feeling about the current status of, of those two and how much, or I guess to what extent their stock has really dropped in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think as far as trade stock goes, it probably has dropped uh, a fair amount because the earlier in the, in the, in the progress you have that level of, of hype on a prospect, maybe the more you're going to get. And then obviously if they, if they grow into it, sure, it'll be more, but I think it's a completely different story for both guys. I think once Profar is given like, okay, you are the, left fielder or you are the shortstop you're the guy i think he's going to be fine and i think we're going to see him really begin to thrive he's he's a smart player he's got the ability to kind of play anywhere you know he said he would prefer to play shortstop but he he could play anywhere on the field except pitcher and catcher and again he pitched in little league so i think he's going to be fine gallo i think is more of a risk but maybe more upside because he has 45 to 50 home run power but I think with Gallo, it's it's mental. I think he was so good growing up, and his parents probably, you know, obviously, if you've got a kid that's hitting home runs with that are you know as, as prodigious as children five years his his uh, elder, then you know you know he's good, and you tell him he's good, and you do everything you can do to to put him in a, a position to to play against the best and and be the best. I think last year was really the first time that Joey Gallo had a chance to. Well, and maybe a little bit in, in the end of 2015 at the big league level, but really had a chance to fail, like, a lot. And, <laughs> and I think it's going to be interesting to see how he, how he responds to that. I, I do think he has the natural talent to do it. You know, there, there are guys that have played in the big leagues and hit 230 and hit 35, 40 home runs. Like, that, that's maybe the guy that he is. And I think he's honestly a better athlete than some of those guys. You know, look at, not that Adam Dunn was like a uh, like a, a, a warthog out there, but but Gallo's fast and he's like a pretty good infielder, and so he still has a lot of value that isn't just hit home runs. The big thing for him is just going to be to learn how to fail, and baseball is a game of failure. I mean, it is a game for masochists. If he can learn how to fail, and I guess the implication there is learn how to succeed directly after he fails, then I think he's going to be fine. Um, if he can get his batting average or because he walks a fair amount too. So, you know, low batting average is going to look ugly on a stat sheet, but his on base is going to be decent if he can if he can just kind of close that hole in his swing, which is the up and in fastball and and if I know that, then obviously, you know, other pitchers know that and he's he's going to have to deal with that at some point. So, mm-hmm. and if there's a reason for optimism other than those young guys taking a step forward, it's that Players that the Rangers had for half a season or so last year will be there for the whole year. So whether that is you, you Darvish, who is starting the season healthy, or Carlos Gomez or Jonathan Lucroy, I guess there's no real reason to think that Darvish and Lucroy won't continue to be excellent. Gomez is the one who everyone wonders about because, you know, he's released by one Texas team and then two days later he goes to the other Texas team and suddenly he's... He becomes a hero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> I mean, he looked done. He looked hurt. There was no explanation for why he was so bad with the Astros. And then suddenly he was rejuvenated and productive again. Do you think that 
that's a real sustainable thing. Is he going to be the old Carlos Gomez again? Yeah. So Carlos Gomez was one of the most fascinating stories of last year for me because yeah. when the Rangers signed him, I I just like, I don't get it. I don't know why they're doing <laughs> this. Clearly he's been terrible. <laughs> and he came up and he was great. And, you know, I had to kind of eat crow a little bit. But as we talked to him, he, I mean, he's a, he's a pretty outgoing guy anyway. He's a funny dude, but he got deadly serious and was like looking us in the eye as if this was, was a, a mortal concern that we understand what he was saying. He was like, I have never learned the things that I've learned from Justin Mayshore, the, the assistant hitting coach. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, I, I, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm seeing the ball hit the bat. And I used to just close my eyes and swing. And we were like, wait, when you were an all-star, you were just closing your eyes and swinging? He's like, yeah, I just, it was just, I just swing and try to hit the ball. And he goes, the things that I'm doing now, like keeping my, my weight a little bit further back, watching the ball a little further. And now I can see the ball hit the bat. Goes, I, I, I never, I feel like I'm a new player. This is, this is brand new to me. So if there's any reason to believe that it's sustainable, it's that maybe maybe that's true. Maybe he figured something out, and maybe Justin Mayshore fixed him. And and Mayshore spent some time with him in the Dominican Republic over the off season. So yeah, I mean he's he's looked fine in spring. He hasn't gotten as many at bats as some of the other guys that they're looking at for jobs, but he's you know, he's looked fine, and he's he's still young enough that his speed plays. So so yeah, I think I think he has the ability to be to be legit. And then I think the other difference between last year's Rangers and this year's Rangers is for the first half of the season last year you had first base occupied by Prince Fielder who was god bless him it wasn't his fault but he was hitting like 160 because his neck wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And then Mitch Moreland who's super streaky but had far more cold streaks than hot streaks last year. This year Mike Napoli I, I don't know Man, if there's a question about sustainability, it's how long can Mike Napoli do it, I think. Mm-hmm. I think if he has a good season, the lineup's going to be fine. For as much as, I guess, the focus has been on the Rangers' youth in the form of Profar and Gallo, as we've already discussed, mm-hmm. uh, Jerkson Profar is recently 24 years old. Joey Gallo is mm-hmm. less recently 23 years old. And Rugnet Odor is even younger yeah. than both of those players. He's 23 years old, one month and 13 days. He's extraordinarily young and... In a sense, Odor last season clearly turned it on. Uh, he, he really upped his power game. He became more of, sort of entered the national spotlight. But one of the mm-hmm. other most fascinating things about Rugnet Odor is that he he really does kind of go big or go home. You know, his on-base mm-hmm. percentage was under 300. But still, you look at the season that he had and what he means to the Rangers is, I guess, one of the heart and soul players in a lineup full of them, at least from the outside. Can you think of, at least off the top of your head, a a contemporary player comp for what Rugnet Odor is? I had one of these, actually. I thought about it just yesterday, and I thought, oh, that reminds me of Rugnet Odor, and now I'm totally blanking on who it is. <laughs> Ryan Healy, mm. who, well, it's it's maybe not a great comp. Maybe the, just the comp is that he's got good power and doesn't walk much. But no, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. He is very much a spark plug. And I think what's going to be really good for Odor is to continue to be with Adrian Beltre for the next couple of years. Um, I think that's been really beneficial for Elvis Andrews. And now Andrews is kind of like beginning to assume a little bit of that leadership role. And he's no longer the like goofy kid that makes all the mistakes. I think he turned a corner last year too, kind of quietly. It didn't get a whole lot of attention, but he had his his best season at the plate. And he was he was a big part of what the Rangers did last year. So having having time to spend with those guys, I think is going to be good for Odor. They're, they're guys that he respects, guys that he looks up to, and he sees the way that they they play. And I think he wants to... You know, as as his career continues, I think he'd like to be able to look back and go, you know, I had a career like 
well, obviously everybody would like to have a career like Adrian Beltre, but even a career like <laughs> Elvis Andrews. And I think he knows. He knows. He he plays the game at a very high uh, high RPM all the time. But yeah, we forget he's just 23. So so the Rangers signed a couple of recuperating pitchers: Andrew Kashner, Tyson Ross. What's the latest ETA for them? And Gosh. if neither of those pitchers pans out, will that be a problem? Is it more like? it's nice insurance to have, or is it more like they might actually have to rely on one of these guys at some point. So they'd better yeah. be healthy eventually. Yeah. So, um, I, I think Andrew Kashner was a little bit of a surprise for everybody that the Rangers brought him in at $10 million when Colby Lewis was right there. Mm-hmm. Colby Lewis still doesn't have a job. That was, I think the surprise for people given Kashner's effectiveness and tendency to be injured. Like you could probably have gotten Colby Lewis for cheaper, but now that they've got him, you know, fingers crossed he'll be able to stay healthy. For me, I think the more interesting story is Tyson Ross. And they're saying that, uh, well, Kashner won't be ready for opening day, but he said, you know, whatever the, the latest test on his biceps was, he uh, he's looking at maybe mid-April, mid to late April. Tyson Ross could be back, I think they're saying like late May. And man, if that guy could come back and be the guy that he was in San Diego, that would be a really good shot in the arm. And you never know with, with thoracic outlet. The Rangers medical staff has had good results with guys with TOS. You know, Matt Harrison was one of those guys. I think Kenny Rogers was one. So, and Tyson Ross has said that that was part of the reason that he chose the the Rangers over the Cubs, who were also very much in on him. And it was down to those two teams. And he said he chose the Rangers because their medical staff had a better track record with thoracic outlet. So, that guy could be a really, really good wild card. And man, if you go into the playoffs with a, with a rotation of, Darvish Hamels and a, a healthy and good Tyson Ross, then then kind of who cares what Kashner does, right? If he can give, give yeah. you a couple, you know, 120, 130 innings. Martin Perez is, uh, it seems like he took a step forward. Last year was his f- first full season after Tommy John. And then, um, yeah, so if everything falls the right way, it could be great. If everything doesn't, you're looking at AJ Griffin, who has a really fun to watch curveball, but good start, not so good finish last year. Mike Hostchild is this the Rule 5 guy that they got from the Astros. He doesn't throw, you know, he's not a flamethrower. His fastball is 91-92, but he locates the ball well and, and has a couple of different uh, breaking pitches that, that do okay. I, I think he's probably projects if I'm, I'm not a scout, but I would, if I had to guess, I'd say he projects as kind of a number five guy in the big leagues. He throws enough strikes and stays in the game long enough, I think, that he's going to be in the big leagues for a while, but... But yeah, if you if you can have a healthy Tyson Ross, then uh, maybe Mike Hostile can be your long reliever for a while because I would love to see Tyson Ross throw like a lot of innings. Yeah. I know we threatened before when we were setting up this podcast that I or we were going to ask you about obscure relievers, but I think I'm just going to ask you about all the <laughs> Rangers young position players because I haven't even touched on Nomar right. Mazzara yet, who is more than a right. year younger than Rudetador is. So Mazzara came right. up, he got off to a really hot start last season. I don't need to recap the season for you, but there are a few swings I can recall in particular where Mazzara flashed like upper deck strength to, to right mm-hmm. center field. He looked like one of the strongest young players in baseball, but ultimately he wound up with a below average batting line, a few too few walks, mm-hmm. too many strikeouts, and, you know, kind of played like a really talented 21-year-old. So yeah. you look at a young player and you sort of apply a mental aging curve and you figure they're all bound to improve, but how much improvement do you actually foresee for Mazar since you have spent a lot more time actually watching him day-to-day than I have? Yeah, I kind of have to rely on other people for that 
you know, I thought Joey Gallo was going to be hitting 35 home runs by this point. So I don't really <laughs> trust my own, uh, my own scouting instincts, but to hear people that are in the game and that have been around the game for a, a, a lot of years, talk about Mazzara. They're like, he, he plays like a veteran who's in his early thirties. He's just got that level of kind of calm demeanor. He's not phased by anything. He's a smart kid. His dad was in the military and, and taught him at a young age to speak English because he knew he, he noticed like you've got some baseball talent and if you want to make more money, you've got to be able to conduct yourself in the United States. So I'm going to teach you English. And he's just this quiet, like I have not seen him. There's a word I'm looking for. It's kind of like a fortress of calm on the outside. And so, you know, the, the guys that, the guys that know baseball players go, he's, he's smart enough and level-headed enough and he's not going to do anything dumb and he's, he's bound to continue to learn. And so, you know, counting on those guys, I think there is a lot of room for improvement that, there are people, I would say on the high end, you get people that start to speak in hushed tones a little bit about how good he could be. And then on the low end, you got people that go, well, if, you know, if what he is is what he is, he's still going to be fine. He's still going to be a good major leaguer. So yeah, gosh, he's only 20. He's not even 22 yet. Is that right? I'm looking at this. I had to double check to see. Yeah, he's he's 40 days away from being 22 years old. So yeah, uh, let's if I were if I were investing, if there was a, a baseball stock market, I would be investing in Nomar Mazzara. Yes, he's he's basically the same age as the college student we just interviewed about the Orioles the other day. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the CBA seems to perhaps hamper the Rangers more than most teams in that they've made so much value out of the international market, and now spending mm-hmm. is limited there. So that seems to hurt them. How is their system positioned right now? Because we have seen them keep bringing up people year after year, but that pipeline might be harder to maintain under the current system. Yeah, yeah, it might be squelched down a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I, there are guys that people are excited about, but I don't think there are as many names. I don't think you continue to hear as as many names as you used to. It used to be every spring training, there were there were eight or nine guys, it seemed like, that everybody was excited about. And um, this year, there are, there are a handful. Um, I think Jose Trevino has been one of those guys that people have, has opened some eyes this spring. And I mean, I, I read one article that tried to compare him to Yadier Molina just because there were a lot of similarities, apparently, in body size and, and the way that they play the game. And that would be great. I don't think he's going to be Yadier Molina, but that's a really nice thing for whoever wrote that article to say. Um, <laughs> Drew Robinson's another one, but it's not like people are kind of surprised like, oh, Drew Robinson could be a major league player. It's not like, oh, this guy could be Mickey Mantle anymore. So um, I, I think, you know, Johan Mendez still has a lot of people that are that are pretty excited about him. Uh, Leody Tavares, I think, is the big one right now. He's 18 and and he's the guy. If you talk to the scouts that that watch the the backfields and you, you watch the guys or you talk to the guys that that are really into like low A prospects, bring up Leody Tavares and he's the one that seems like without fail everyone's like oh that guy he's watch out for him he's going to be great so but but yeah like gone are the days when you would have I mean gosh how many people did we trade to Philadelphia in 2015 that are in the major leagues or that's not even counting a double Herrera so yeah it's it's less and and I don't know enough about how the the CBA works regrettably I feel stupid even admitting that but I, I that's something that I'm still kind of digging into to really tell you how they're going to navigate that. I do think John Daniels is a pretty smart guy, <laughs> but you probably don't make it to be a general manager in the big leagues if you're not. So 
So yeah, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, looking at the Fangraphs put up a top 100 prospect list just the other day, and Leody Tavares was the highest-ranking Texas Ranger. He slotted in at 49th between Kevin Maitan and Josh Bell. Josh Bell is going to be the starting first baseman for the Pirates this year. So Tavares, he's a uh, he's the guy. He's getting attention. So my yeah. my last quick question, maybe a softball, but is okay. Adrian Beltre the best part of your job? Let me think of. I w- I want to make sure that I'm answering this question honestly and, and not just giving the uh, the automatic yes. When so Beltre's been around long enough that he knows how to hide when it's when he doesn't want to talk. When he does talk, he's great and he's very engaging and he's he is as fun to talk to as he well maybe almost as fun to talk to as he is to to, to watch him play. For me, I I think I like the the guys in the bullpen cuz I'll just talk with them about like music or movies or whatever like last year was my first year doing the job and like the first time I talked to them and this is back when Tom Wilhelmson was with the team too and um, I kind of just like I felt like they opened up at first and I asked a stupid baseball question and I felt like I blew it and so the next day I walked in like guys come here just guys I need all of you come, come here gather around and they're like what is this guy doing <laughs> like hey uh I feel like you really let me into the circle of trust yesterday and I blew it so I just want to make a deal with you that uh Unless it's absolutely necessary, I'm not going to ask you any more baseball questions this season. <laughs> and, and they're like, yes. And Tony Barnett goes, I hate baseball questions. Perfect. Thank you. So uh, so those are those are kind of my guys, Diekman and and, uh, and Barnett and, and to a lesser extent, Dyson. I think Dyson still enjoys just kind of like being as stone-faced as possible. But um, I, think, I think secretly, maybe we're secretly friends and I just don't know it yet. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, Beltre is pretty great too. It's my favorite line, um, last year was after the, you know, the fight and it's Odora Bautista. And, and of course everybody wants to talk to Adrian Beltre about it. Cause he's the one that's like holding Bautista either up or back, depending on which fan base you're talking to. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody uh, asked, so what did you see in, in the punch? And he goes, I, I didn't see it. I was looking at first base. And uh, everyone gets quiet, like, oh, he's not going to talk to us. And Evan Grant goes, did you hear it? <laughs> and Beltre, <laughs> you can just see his, oh, wait, I'm, I'm getting away from the computer. You can just see his face. He, like, he stares down at the at the floor. And the sm- he's, uh, against his own will, the smile begins to spread across his face. He's like, guys, I'm trying to be serious here. <laughs> and, you know, everybody just, so that was that was the moment of the, where I felt the luckiest to be in a clubhouse. I'm like, oh, that was that was cool. I got to be there for that moment. But um, but it's a fun clubhouse. There really aren't any guys that are just like, ugh, that guy, he's a jerk. Hey, hanging out with him. Um, it's a pretty good pretty good room of dudes. All right. Well, we always wrap these things up with a win total prediction, much to our guests' Ooh. dismay and our own Ooh. dismay. So we have to do it. Can you give us a number that no one will remember or hold you to later? But yeah, to be clear, right. it is documented. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eighty-nine. Okay. All right. I well. think I think I think that's enough to. Oh gosh, is that enough to win the division with the Astros and the Mariners this year? You're the one predicting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, but you guys are smarter than me. I'm. I'm asking for a, my lifeline on this. Yeah, 89. Let's go with that. All right. Okay, you can find Levi writing about the Rangers at WFAA.com slash sports slash Rangers. You can find him on Twitter at 32EFAS. Is there a specific 32EFAS that is based on? Uh, It's the only time I ever got to pitch. It was after high school. I was playing like this, I don't know, 
like pay money to play league in, in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had always wanted to pitch, but I had always never been good at it. <laughs> and they, they let me pitch one game and I, I, uh, I, they were like, I loaded the bases. I'd given up a run or two, but we're still in the lead. And I'm about to walk this guy. Like I can feel that I'm about to walk this guy and the counts three and two, you know, bases loaded two outs and I'm acting like I'm really frustrated and I like kicking the dirt. And I remembered rookie of the year where he did the floater and his mom's like in the stands going, do the floater. (laughs) And Henry Rowan Gardner, whose broken arm doesn't work anymore. He's like, oh yeah. And he pulls the strip of tape back. Like I had none of that. I was just out on a field with nobody watching. But I'm like, do the floater. And I lean back and I'm looking this guy in the eyes as if I'm going to just, you know what, if I'm going to walk you, I'm just going to put one between your ears. Here it comes. And I throw like the highest floater. (laughs) He swung. And he grounded it to second base, and I got out of the inning. And I'm like, this is a good thing to remember in life, that when it's really pressure-filled, do something stupid instead of taking it seriously, and maybe it'll work. And uh, so, yeah, the, the 3-2 Ephus is the, it's my pitching legacy. All right. I'm glad I asked. We got a life lesson out of it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Levi. Cool. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, we'll be right back after the break to talk to Tim Healy about the Marlins. Like to think that we're all alike what makes the world go round. Lately I wonder if all my pondering is taking up too much ground. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the Miami Marlins, and to help us do that, we have Tim Healy of the Sun Sentinel. Hello, Tim. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Excellent. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, we're, we're delighted to find somebody who actually writes about the Marlins uh, on purpose, and uh, I don't know. I don't think we could ever find a fan, but we at least found someone who knows his stuff, and I'm, I have to apologize that the first question isn't about the Marlins roster, which is the most fun part, but I think whenever people think about the Miami Marlins, one of the first things that comes to mind is, of course, their owner, and there's been some sort of whispers of news about the team looking to sell. There are a lot of potential implications here, but I guess maybe the first, do you think that the market would respond and be able to embrace a Marlins team when Jeffrey Loria is no longer in charge of it? I can't guarantee that, but there are a lot of people who talk about how much they hate Jeffrey Loria. And if you brought in a, a new owner, uh, even perhaps one that lives in South Florida, I think there is a lot of room for growth there as far as... Uh, belovedness goes <laughs> yes that seems like an understatement <laughs> if anything right. um, yeah putting, putting, putting it lightly do you think <laughs> so i mean this the team has been around for about 25 years do you think that there's some chance it's too far gone maybe they kind of missed their chance to find their footing or i guess i i never really quite understand what it's like in the community when you have an owner like this but i've never been in a community that has an owner like this you are you've got your actual boots on the ground sure well they you know in south florida there's a lot of transplants there's people from all over the country people who come from new york tri-state area a lot of times and they they have their own allegiances when they come here 
but th- there are always kids. There are always young people. There are always, you know, you can always win over new fans. I think of, you know, Stephen Ross, who owns the Dolphins, and Mickey Harrison, who owns the Heat. People love those guys. And it's because Mickey Harrison puts in his money, you know, brings in LeBron and the big three, wins some titles. Stephen Ross just uh, revamped Hard Rock Stadium with his own money, and people love that place now. So it, it's hard to say that, yes, the, the people will come once Loria leaves, but at, it can't really get worse as far as attendance goes as, and as far as TV ratings and TV deals go right now. So you can only go up, really. And is this a story that you and other reporters are trying to do a lot of digging on and try to uncover details about who's involved and prices and hang-ups, or is this the kind of thing where it's hard to find out what's happening until the parties are ready to announce something? It's a little bit of both because the Marlins, both publicly and off the record, have been quite mum on it. And when the Kushner family was pursuing their sale bid last month, a lot of the reports and a lot of the new information was coming from, you know, Forbes, the New York Times, things like that. Mm-hmm. People with sources in the uh, the world of rich New York City people. I am <laughs> not. I am not a part of that community. I can say definitively. <laughs> so if that's where the new owner, new eventual owner, comes from, then you'll probably see more reports uh, from there. But uh-huh. there's there's been talk too that maybe a couple of local parties are interested. And if that's the case, then you'll you'll definitely hear from reporters down here. And uh, the other part of you know pursuing that story is at this point, you know, over the you started to hear whispers, you know, into the off season that maybe Jeffrey Loria wants to sell. And when Jose Fernandez died, uh, Jeffrey it hit him hard. He he was very close to Jose, and so maybe maybe you know maybe he taps the brakes on selling or, or whatever. You know, he wanted to be here for the All Star game, but now more and more it seems like inevitability whether that's in the next few months or in the second half after the All-Star game or, or next winter, it certainly looks like uh, Laurie is not long for Miami. Mm-hmm. Well, next time I'm walking down Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue, I'll keep my ears open just in case any rich New Yorkers are talking sure. loudly about purchasing <laughs> the Marlins. I'll tip you right. off. You have a better shot asking strangers on the street that, than I do <laughs> asking her around the Marlins. <laughs> So if we can transition briefly to the even more depressing subject that you just brought up, it's probably not something we have to dwell on. I don't even know what to think of it myself right now, but I am curious if there has been any reaction from the clubhouse, from the team, from the players about the recent revelations about Jose Fernandez and his culpability with the accident. I don't know what the appropriate reaction is, really, but has there been one? A little bit. Don Mattingly was asked about it and said it doesn't really change anything about what he remembers of Jose or, or the sadness of the whole situation through families losing their, their sons. Some players declined to talk about it. Uh, a couple said they weren't even aware of the news Friday morning, which would be 24 hours after it broke. The one player who did talk and talked quite all openly was Miguel Rojas, their utility infielder, and he spoke about how really it's uh, a cautionary tale now. When Jose mm-hmm. died and, you know, there was that very emotional week at the end of the season, it was just sadness and the loss of, uh, you know, the prodigal son. But now you can't, now it's a lot messier. Mm-hmm. Rojas was talking about how for Latin players, especially any tight in the Yordano Ventura, Andy Marte, Oscar Tavares deaths from recent years, that uh, 
guys have to be careful. According to the report, you know, Jose was drunk, had cocaine in the system, was speeding, and plowed in a pile of rocks in a part of the area where you can't really see where you're going. Uh, and Rojas's point was, you know, and to paraphrase him, don't be stupid. You know, be safe. You have to look out for yourself because you have to look out for your family. And so that that was his sentiment. And that is something the Marlins, have, that's a sentiment David Sampson, Marlins president, has expressed in the past and something I believe the Marlins have talked about as a team. There's no real good way here to segue into talking about the Marlins as they are as a baseball team, but I guess we're... We're going <laughs> to try to do that now, so insert appropriate pause and time for consideration. But of very obviously, when you lose Jose Fernandez, it leaves a gaping hole in the baseball roster. And as you look at the Marlins starting rotation, there are five, six, seven names of people who are technically big league caliber starters. But it is a rotation that is lacking. I think we would all agree on that but if anything i think that think that the marlins bullpen is very interesting maybe underrated in the sense that no one really pays attention to the marlins anyway but this is a a very deep uh, bullpen it has a lot of talent i think they're talking about beginning with eight relievers and and there was some talk a few weeks ago that the team was prepared to sort of use their pitching staff unconventionally going into the year to make more of the bullpen and put a little less burden on the starting rotation. So as the season is now only a couple weeks away from the beginning, have you heard any sort of updates on whether the Marlins are going to follow through on their, I would say, very interesting promises? Not anything concretely. I think we're going to have to wait till to see what they actually do once regular season games start. They are planning on taking eight relievers and going with the short bench. Uh, Jeff Locke looks like he's going to open on the DL, which opens one spot up that'll be one by one of three guys, uh, Brian Ellington, Nick Whitgren, or Hunter Cervenka. But as far as the unconventional use goes, that's something they've talked about throughout the offseason, and I'm interested to see uh, the reality. My worry is, and I, I would love to see the Marlins go crazy with it, you know, <laughs> saying, you know, let the starter get us through four innings, say. You know, that's close to two times around the lineup if, if it's a kind of me- mediocre four innings and just handed it over to what they call their bridge guys, most notably David Phelps, who they see as their Andrew Miller type. And then, say, the bridge guys get it through six or seven innings and then hand it off to a really quality back of the bullpen with A.J. Ramos, uh, Kyle Bearclaw, Brad Ziegler, uh, Junichi Tazawa, probably the fourth name of those four. I think there is potential there. The Marlins think they can cover up for their mediocre rotation with a really strong bullpen, but I'll be curious to see how the relievers are actually deployed as opposed to uh, just sketching it out on paper. I have to compile a list of every team's Andrew Miller type because every team <laughs> yeah. has an Andrew right. Miller type this spring, right? And most of them sure. are nowhere near as good as Andrew Miller, but sure, they are sure. just pitchers no, nobody who is. can pitch multiple innings, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what they see in Phelps, who, you know, to his credit, had a very good year, year last year. But uh, you know, there aren't a lot of true Andrew Millers out there. Yeah. So you tweeted something about a D Gordon play. He bunted for a single. He's still second. He took third on a single, and then he scored on a sack fly. Very D Gordon sequence. Sure. This was not the sort of thing that we saw a whole lot of last year, even after he returned from the suspension. He obviously still ran, still stole bases, but didn't do all the other things that you want hitters to do. So is it the standard answer to 
the is he the 2015 D Gordon or is he the 2016 D Gordon? Well, he's somewhere in the middle. Or do you have a different <laughs> answer from that? Uh, that? That's that's pretty much my answer. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot. A lot of people are low on him right now because he looked so bad last year. But I think you know those first couple of weeks of the season when he looked bad, he had the the news of the or the, the knowledge of the looming suspension weighing on him. And he came back with, you know, no real spring training, sitting around for half a year, a short rehab assignment, and then, you know, didn't look great when he did come back for the two-plus months. So right now I'm willing to give him the benefit of the, of the doubt and seeing what happened. But uh, last year, definitely a weird year. 2015, is he going to win another batting title? I don't know. <laughs> I, I took a couple other Marlins. Uh, I took a couple other Marlins ahead of him in terms of uh, likelihood of winning a batting title. But uh, mm-hmm. you know the speed's going to be there. So if he can see, keep stealing bags at the rate he has, uh, even last year, then uh, that's something. <laughs> Hopefully he'll draw a few more walks in that. He's talked about bunting as frequently as once a game. So it, <laughs> I guess we'll see. <laughs> I guess that's the ultimate give up on swinging. i got to go <laughs> ahead and I'm going to force two questions into one here conveniently because you gave me a sure. segue. Speaking of potential other Marlins batting champions, who do you think this season is going to be the better hitter between Christian Yelich and Giancarlo Stanton? Ooh. Average-wise, Yelich. Uh, Power-wise, uh-huh. Stanton. Is that a, is that a cop-out? <laughs> uh, that is a cop-out, as yes, a matter of fact. Yes, that, that, that is the cop definition out. of a cop-out. In, term, <laughs> in terms of all-around production, I would yeah, put my money Oak, on, yes, on, Wobo, on, on Yelich. Okay. I'll put my money on Yelich. Mm-hmm. We saw the power come around from him late last season, and even month to month over the course of the second half, he was hitting more and more fly balls. So I think that's something he's figuring out and something we'll see more of this year. Whereas Stanton, and I will, you know, actually, you know what, I'm not talking about Yelich yet. Obviously, he's in the WBC right now, and the WBC guys are talking him up big. I think uh, Jim Leland said he could win a batting title. Kino Martinez said he could become an all-time great outfielder, which I had to listen to a couple times because those are some strong words for a guy who hasn't even been an all-star yet. But that's, you know, what the Marlins think of Yelich, too. As far as Stan goes, obviously it's really fun to see him hit a baseball with a baseball bat. But <laughs> the question is if, whether he can stay healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, We're not too far removed from John Carlos Stan, runner-up to the MVP award. Uh, but we're also not too far removed from Giancarlo Stan pulling his groin and supposedly being out for the season until he comes back in a couple of weeks. So which Giancarlo we'll see, I would bet on him having a big year, but a big year doesn't mean anything as far as freak injuries and health goes. Yeah. Okay. So I have to ask a follow-up on Yelich because he clearly has never been hurting for success. He's been a good hitter from pretty much day one when he was, by the way, 21 years old in the major league. So Yelich already outstanding. Last year, clearly he had something of a power breakthrough. The drag always has been that he hit a bunch of baseballs on the ground. Last year, he hit fewer of those. I know the the Marlins have talked about his continued progression and they expect the power to come even more, which the numbers totally back up his capability for that. But in terms of him lifting the ball more, do you see that as more of an adjustment he has to make to his swing or just sort of a, a selectivity of the pitches he goes after and, and the pitches he doesn't? I would lean towards selectivity. I asked him about this recently, and I asked assistant hitting coach Frank Mancino about it recently because it was something that was obviously a main storyline for him last year. In terms of the ground balls and fly balls, he improved on that last year. I think in May he had something like a 15% fly ball rate, and in September, October, it was almost 30. 
So he pretty much doubled it, you know, for, from the month of May to the month of September. And he's not interested in talking about swing changes or, you know, it, it's more about pro- approach for him than it is mechanics. He's not one of those guys that's trying to suddenly hit the ball in the air and hit a bunch of home runs. But uh, the way Frank Manichino put it was he's letting the ball get deeper and then, you know, it, it, it's about the selectivity, like you mentioned. He's letting the ball get deeper in the zone, so then he's able to – just the point at which it connects with the bat, it's more likely to go in the air. I'm not a big uh, swing swing mechanics guy, but it was a really inter- interesting conversation with, with Manichino. The other thing he's been doing is the Marlins are big on him learning how to pull the ball, which is something that he hasn't done a ton of in his career, but he started to do more so last year. So between – those two, there is room for growth, even from a very good 2016 for Christian Yelich. So has Stanton tried to do anything differently over the winter or in spring training to try to keep himself healthy this year? Like, is this the year he finally decides to get in shape? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but when you mention that, because he, he has that, you know, create a player body where you just max everything out in the video game. But mm-hmm. it, in, in on a series though, I haven't asked about him about this yet because he's been away. But he he looks a, a little slimmer, still ripped and still very defined mm-hmm. and jacked and all of those things. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if he's more flexible or just looks slimmer or what. But it wouldn't surprise me if there's there's something there that uh, lends itself to you know not tearing muscles. <laughs> uh, there's, there's yeah. you can do when you get hit in the face with a ball, for example, but. Uh, there, there are certainly uh, things like stretching, yoga. You hear about guys doing right. baseball and those lines. Not to say Stanton has delved into any of that, but he, he's talking a very big game this spring. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if he can back that up. Yeah, it seems like anecdotally players just sort of go from one extreme to the other depending on how their season goes. So they'll come in one year and it's like, oh, I, I bulked up and I I got tired at the end of last season, so I, right. I put on some weight this year. And then if they have a bad year, next year they come in and it's, oh, I worked on my core strength and my flexibility and I did yoga and I slimmed down and now I'm sure. so flexible. And, and then depending on how that goes, they might go back to the other direction. Anyway, he should maybe try something different because it hasn't right. worked so well. But maybe that's just a, a bunch of freak injuries or things that you can't prepare for. I don't know. But we all want to see, I think, a full, healthy, productive Stanton season. That would be fun. Absolutely. You know, you see things like him hitting a 500-foot home run in Colorado last year, and it's like, man, if only he can do things like avoiding striking out 32 times in 64 at-bats like he did, I think, one stretch <laughs> last year. It'd be uh, right. even more fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, I don't know, this is going too far. Kyle Bearclaw is not a pitching version of Giancarlo Stanton, but he's weird, at least, so that's going to be the segue here. Uh, Bearclaw last year, and even just throughout his limited major league career, if you add together his strikeouts and his walks, he has a strikeout and walk rate of more than 50%. Basically, more than half of his plate appearances end with no balls in play. At the same time, (laughs) in 97 innings, he's allowed two home runs, he's allowed 57 hits, he's Obviously, very difficult to square up. Sometimes the walks for a pitcher like this can just be a function of he's always in deep counts and hitters don't know what to do. What is the read on Kyle Bearclaw? Is he effective or is he effectively wild? 
What is yeah, what is I've, that? I've wanted to have him on the show for a while because he <laughs> is really like a lot of pitchers get called that in a single outing or routinely, right. but he <laughs> is like he really epitomizes the phrase. I think mm-hmm. absolutely. I, the, the Marlins love him. They talk they talk him up as not only a potential future closer, but as a guy who can do that very well for a long time. The the hang up being, of course, that he walks too many guys, and he's always walked too many guys, uh, even throughout his career in the minors and. When the, the Marlins acquired him from the Cardinals a couple summers ago, that was the one downside to you know his, his nasty stuff, as they say. He's another guy who first half to second half and even month to month, it looked like he started to reel in the walks a little bit and have better control. Uh, he tired at the end of last year, I think, a little bit, and the, the Marlins backed off, him, uh, backed off of him in the last week or two just because he, he ditched so much. They expected him to win a job out of spring training last year, and the walks were such an issue that he was sent to AAA New Orleans for a couple of weeks. Then he dominated and got called up in mid-April and had a, an all-around very good rookie year. But we're seeing it again this year, too, that he's walking a lot of guys in great brew league games. And when we asked Don Mattingly about it the other day, Mattingly basically acknowledged, hey, this is kind of who Bearclaw is, and at least we know he'll be overall effective as a as a bottom line. Uh, <laughs> he's tantalizing in that sense because he can be as good as he was and as often as he struck guys out, he could be even better at all those things if he only uh, didn't walk so many guys. Yeah, if, if you can just keep it to like sub six walks per nine, it might work. <laughs> <laughs> it might be okay. <laughs> right, but but the uh, you know with the addition of Ziegler. That probably bumps Bear Claw to the, the to being the seventh inning guy, but he'll, he'll be in the late inning mix for sure. Walks, walks, and all. <laughs> Is AJ Ellis already the most popular player on the team with <laughs> with the Marlins and with everyone who covers him, or does he not work quite that quickly? Uh, no, he, if he's not already the most popular guy for teammates and and reporters, then then he's probably close to it. We haven't mm-hmm. seen him much, and we haven't had much of an excuse to talk to him because he's been out with a with a hamstring injury. But all of the scouting reports I got, as far as him being a, a good dude, are, are true. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so Ichiro had 91 hits in 2015, mm-hmm. and he had less playing time last year, but did more with it. Had 95 hits last year. If he had another 90 hits this year, he's sitting on 3,030 right now. That would Vault him past Rod Carew, Ricky Henderson, Craig Biggio, Dave Winfield, and Alex Rodriguez into 19th place. If you had to guess, based on how much playing time you expect him to get and what he'll do with it, do you have any guess for how close he'll come to his hit totals from the last couple of years? Does he have something left still, and does he have a role on the team? Uh, he, he does have a role on the team. He'll, he'll be their fourth outfielder, and if I had to... You know, project him out over a whole season. I'd I'd say his hit total would probably probably be about the same. The Marlins love him not only in the work ethic and living legend sense, but as a fourth outfielder. If one of Yelich, Ozuna, or Stanton got hurt, I don't know that they'd turn to him on a full time role because they like what he offers in the part time role and fear that he gets worn down when he plays too much, which makes sense because he's you know 43 years old. Mm-hmm. Last year we had the you know the chase for three thousand and all that and Ichiro admitted during and after his three thousand that uh, it weighed on him a little bit. Uh, all the attention there were dozens of Japanese reporters here for every game and uh, for a lot of that he was pinch hitting, 
which is tough to get in the groove with, even after you know a couple of years of coming off the bench for Ichiro. So this year for Ichiro, I expect more of the same. He's kind of like Tom Brady, I guess, in that you expect somewhere along the way he's going to stop being able to do what he does. But you know, I don't I don't know when that's going to be. He he talks every he talks a lot about how he wants to play till he's 50, and the Marlins not only picked up his option but signed him, you know, reworked his deal to add another option for 2018. So every year, the half jokes about wanting to play till he's 50 are, are a little bit less of a joke. <laughs> Looking at sort of a bigger organizational perspective, the Marlins traded their first round pick from 2012. They traded their first round pick from 2013. Their uh, their 2014 first rounder is out with Tommy John surgery. They they traded their 2015 first rounder. So Keith Law ranked the Marlins farm system 29th out of there were 30 by the way. There's 30 farm systems. Marlins second to last. <laughs> and looking at a, a Fangraph's top 100 prospect list from very recently, I just do a little search for Marlins and all of the players that show up are Braxton Garrett. And that's it. It's just Braxton Garrett shows up. Very good prospect. The Marlins have, I'm thinking in particular of like the, uh, the Colin Ray, Andrew Kashner trade, but there's been, there's been more when the Marlins have played maybe a little fast and loose with the farm system. And as you look at the big league roster it's still there's still a lot of talent there if not so deep but is there any sort of plan in place to sort of improve the players coming up the system or are are they just sort of in a place now where it's dry and maybe the new ownership will install a better player development system my guess would be the latter because i in my view the ownership change is uh inevitable like we mentioned earlier the decision to repeatedly trade prospects for players that in theory benefit their major league system comes from the top you know Jeffrey Loria doesn't value uh, guys who aren't producing for him now I guess so when that changes I think it'll be an opportunity for a whole lot to change and that includes how they value prospects and how they value how they you know their play development and all that now that's not a knock against the guys who are in there now but you know, there's only so much you can do when somebody above you is calling the shots. It doesn't help, of course, that, you know, the last few years, the Marlins have been a sexy pick to be, you know, a dark horse to win the division or win a wild card and finally make it to the playoffs, and it keeps not working out. But when they make these trades, like adding Fernando Rodney for a pro- pitching prospect or adding Andrew Kashner and for a couple of days, Colin Ray for a couple of prospects to quote-unquote go for it, uh, <laughs> I-, I don't know what going for it is for the Marlins because it, a player, say Fernando Rodney, uh, that really backfired on them, but say say he was pretty good. I don't know what difference he would have made in the grand scheme. You know, whether going for it is finishing above 500 or making it to the playoffs for a wild card game, but it, it seems like their priorities don't always align with <laughs> those that would be beneficial to deepening the farm system. For sure. Okay, so to wrap up these segments, we subject each of our guests to <laughs> a prediction request. So, can you give us a 2017 win total for the Miami Marlins? I think I'm going to go with 81 on the 500 on the dot. They've been under 500 for I believe seven years in a row now, and the reality is that for as much as they like this lineup and bullpen, this was a sub 500 team that lost its best pitcher and added a couple of solid relievers and a couple of, you know, middle-to-back-end rotation arms in his place. 
So I think 500 or above 500 would, would be a step forward for them. Really, that's probably their realistic ceiling. All right. You can find Tim on Twitter at Tim B. Healy. You can find him writing at The Sun Sentinel. And you have a book that's about to come out, right? You want to give a quick plug? Sure. I wrote a book about minor league baseball stadiums in the Northeast. It's called Hometown Hardball, and it comes out May 1, something I started before moving to South Florida last year. And I'm really excited for it to come out. So, again, hometown hardball for all the minor league nerds out there like me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Coming out May 1st, you can pre-order it now. All right. Thanks, Tim. Great. Thank you guys very much. All right. Thank you. All right. That'll do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have done so already include Olaf Hung, Chase Livingood, Chris Green, Jeff Reed, and Nishant Menon. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Keep your questions coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We'll do emails next time. If you're looking for something else to listen to in the meantime, Michael Bauman and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We talked to Eric Longenhagen and Chris Mitchell from Fangrass about the site's scouting-based and stats-based top 100 prospect lists and the guys who appeared on the former but not the latter. And we also talked to a couple members of the band The Isotopes, punk rock baseball band, about their new single and their new album. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We will be back soon. Hello. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, <take two. laughs> you know how to not make people think you're older. <laughs> uh.